It's a real pleasure to be here today and share what I do uh, from my setting as an epidemiologist with a slightly different group of people because the perspectives I think I can gain from your input will be really interesting. So today I'm going to be talking about, as the title says, the long-term outcomes of childhood obesity. So the outline for my talk today is really going to focus on how do we define childhood obesity, a very brief look at how the quote-unquote epidemic we're in the midst of has developed, and then I'm going to probe and see if there's future health consequences and very briefly if there's future social consequences. The majority of the data that I'm going to present today are going to focus on work that I'm doing in Copenhagen, but I will bring in other studies to show perspective and to try to establish plausibility that the childhood period in terms of growth and body size could have future consequences. So we consider growth references, there's a very long history, there's been a very long history of studying human size, growth, and how we assess this. So anytime we're looking at a child's growth, we compare them to one of these references. Um, we have the Tanner reference, we have American CDC references, and we have even the more recent World Health Organization references. What all of these have in common is that they really provide us with a comparison or a reference point to interpret if a child's body size and or growth is appropriate. So we just take one child and compare them to how a distribution of other children do at the same age. Now, some features of references really, they reflect the source population. So they're always gonna reflect the group of people who were measured, what era they lived in, how frequently they were measured, their ethnic background, and their social status. Of course, when we discuss these references, they can be national, they can be international, and they can even be study-specific. So what this is doing, when we're talking about references, you always need to be clear in which reference you're comparing to, because there's different implications. I mean, they're just measuring the individual's growth, and we can do this in terms of centiles, percentage of the reference median, and z-scores. And just as a quick reminder, the z-score is just your actual anthropometric value, for example, weight, minus the median weight reference value, divided by the standard deviation. So this just tells you where the child lies in this big distribution. Now, these references that we talk about, there's several ones which are in use right now, particularly in Europe. We have the International Obesity Task Force. It was created in a very specific methodological way, where they back transform weights, cutoff points we use in adulthood of BMIs of 25 and 30, and through a series of statistical methodologies using international data sets, they were back transformed to give us cutoffs in childhood. Additionally, there's a World Health Organization references, which were released in 2007. Now, although the name World Health Organization implies this is an international data set, in actuality it's not. It's based solely upon American data. So you always need to really investigate what you are comparing your children to. And the implications of this, depending on the reference you're using, you can come out with an entirely different estimate of childhood obesity. So what I have here, this has been run on some of our own data. I've used three different references. I use Cole, which is the old International Obesity Task Force, and just earlier this year, he released some new values. In our case of the data, it didn't make a difference. Overweight stayed the same, obesity stayed the same. Newsom, which is in a national Danish reference, and also the WHO 2007 references. And so this here is overweight amongst boys at approximately 15 to 16 years of age, and here is obesity. 
And what we can see is, depending upon which reference we choose, we can come out with an entirely different prevalence estimate. Now, you cannot make comparisons amongst these different estimates because these are the same children, but nonetheless, we can see that you, know, you can come up with some significant differences which may have very big policy implications. So you always have to be cognizant of which reference you're using and why. Now, I think a lot about growth references. It's really a focus of my research because I consider how do we define childhood obesity? All of these classifications are based on arbitrary cutoff points. I'm not saying they're inadequate, we really don't know. But have you ever noticed that all the cutoff points tend to be the 85th percentile, the 95th percentile, or the 97th percentile? Are these numbers good or bad? We really couldn't say. Or does it reflect perhaps a digit preference we have? Is identifying children who are larger than a certain set point of the population, so maybe that's a bad thing or a good thing? We really don't know. And the key point is that each reference is representing this different population in terms of composition, time, and place. So if we were to take children of today, measured within, say, the past 10 years, and use them as our reference, well, perhaps we'd underestimate the prevalence of overweight and obesity because these children now of today are so much larger than in the past. So given all these differences, it's really unsurprising, in fact, that these estimates vary depending upon the reference used. And this is a point to be very cognizant of because you can find yourself in a lot of discussions where people will say, but I found this number using the same data and you found this number. If you use two different references, it's very unsurprising. When we define childhood obesity, typically we're talking about body mass index. Now, body mass index weight in kilos over height in meters squared, is it perfect? No. Is it adequate at a population level? Probably. So if we can accept that we can use this to define childhood adiposity, even though body mass index may not reflect only the adipose tissue, but also lean tissue, then we can accept it's a way in which we can have a common discussion about the problems. The focus of my research is, really, do these classifications identify children who are at risk of negative long-term health consequences? This is a particular focus of my research because in adults, when we talk about overweight and obesity, defined as BMIs of 25 and 30 respectively, they do have associations with long-term health consequences. In childhood, like I said, these are just based upon an arbitrary cut point in the distribution. And the reason why I think about this so much is because back when I was doing my PhD studies, I was giving a seminar, a little bit like this one, and I was describing some studies in animals and I was talking about fat rats and lean rats. And somebody very cheekily asked the question, what's a fat rat? Well, I said, it's squishy. They said, well, okay, fine. But how but does this rat weigh? How big is this rat in comparison to the other rats? And it really started me thinking, <coughs> if we don't define obesity based upon something more than a distribution, maybe it's not adequate. So because of this, I sort of jumped over the ocean and I went to Copenhagen. And this is what I'm going to be talking about for the rest of the day today. So if we take a look right now, we constantly hear that we're in the middle of a childhood obesity epidemic. So if we look at the world, we can see recently many countries have been very proud because the epidemic has actually been stabilizing. In green, we have countries who are stable. In red, we have countries who are increasing. So we can see the general pattern within Europe is stabilization, similarly in America and similarly in Australia. Southeast Asia is increasing. 
But what I'd actually like to draw your attention to is the gray. Data not available. So in fact, we really don't have adequate data for what's going on in the majority of the world for what childhood obesity or childhood underweight is actually doing. In Denmark, we have a unique access to a data set that's given us the opportunity to analyze how this trend in childhood obesity has developed. So here on the x-axis, we have the year of measurement, and over here we have the prevalence of overweight. In this case, it's defined by the IOTF references. So if we go over time, what I'd like you to focus on is that although our absolute levels are small, it has not developed in a linear trend, as it's commonly assumed in many countries and in many publications. It's developed in waves and phases. And a really interesting aspect of this from a research perspective is these breaks in the phases indicate <coughs> something may have changed here at this period of time, so it really gives us the opportunity to go in and do further investigations there. And this is what's going on in conjunction with historians and also people in this department. But the implication of it not developing in a linear manner is that when people make predictions for the childhood obesity epidemic of the future, they're continually basing these predictions upon linear models. And in fact, it's perfectly natural, perhaps, to have breaks in the so-called increase in the epidemic. And this pattern I should mention has actually been observed in America and also in Australia, so it's not just a Danish phenomenon. In England right now, through the National Obesity Observatory, children are being measured, uh, their BMI is being calculated for school, uh, amongst school-aged children. So what we can see here is in boys and girls at four to five years of age, and in boys and girls at about 10 to 11 years of age. In the 2009-2010 school year, the prevalence of obesity increased. Not a lot, but it's a statistical increase. So if you put this in perspective of how the trend may have developed over time, although there's been somewhat of a plateau over the past few years for which we do have data points, perhaps the stabilization we're observing right now in many countries is temporary, and it could kick off again. Now, childhood obesity does have concurrent health consequences. These are quite well established. In this case, having excess weight for your height will be associated with pulmonary disorders, gastrointestinal, renal, musculoskeletal, and endocrine abnormalities. Additionally, there are psychosocial and psychological consequences, and there's a fair amount of evidence saying there's an increase in the prevalence of cardiovascular risk factors in these children who are extremely heavy. So we know childhood obesity is not a healthy state of being, or excess adiposity in a child, I'm using very non-specific definitions here. This is just the general way of talking about children who are just too big for their age, if you will. <coughs> but when we consider this across the lifespan, the question is, what do we and what do we not know? In adulthood, it is well established that excess adiposity is associated with health consequences, increased risk of cardiovascular disease, cancers, diabetes, and so forth. Interestingly enough, we also have a fair amount of information suggesting that larger size at birth is associated with these similar outcomes. So if you think it, we have associations at birth and in adulthood, it's plausible that something going on in these middle years, I should also mention we have lots of evidence that excess body size in late adolescence is also associated with the outcomes. The majority of this evidence, however, in late adolescence comes from conscripts. So although we have very large studies, these are based entirely upon men. 
In this period here, between childhood and early adolescence, which I'm describing as less than 13 years, there's very little information. So, although it's plausible something going on here may affect your future risk, we really don't know. And why this period is of particular interest is because potentially, at least conceptually, it would be easier to intervene with children at this age when they are in schools than to wait later on when they're out living adult lives and are potentially more resistant to change. So if we accept it's plausible, something going on in these years could link to future disease, what could the mechanisms possibly be? Well, one that always immediately pops up is tracking. In other words, if a child is big at seven, they're likely to be big at eight and nine and ten and just become a very big adult. And it's this method, this, this mechanism, that puts them at increased risk. But childhood obesity is not a static condition. It's actually far more movable, if you will, than we, when we consistently think of it. Very large, elegant studies have shown there is a tracking effect. But reviews actually find, if we put the totality of the evidence together, the effect may not be as strong as we think it is. In this study we did using Danish data, we divided children by year of birth. In blue we have boys, and in red we have girls. And this is the percentage of children remitting from obesity. That means being obese at seven years of age, according to the IOTF reference, and not being obese at 13 years of age. And we can see, over time, approximately close to 80% of boys and over 80% of girls actually remitted from obesity in the earliest birth cohort. As time went on, these numbers decreased somewhat, but at all points in time, over 60% of children who were obese at seven years of age were no longer obese at 13. So this suggests there is a fair amount of movement in this and that maybe tracking isn't entirely the only explanation. Of course, are there other mechanisms? Well, of course, there's the early establishment and the early and continued exposure to disease risk factors. There's really good evidence that this could be the case in particular for cardiovascular disease. Maybe there's an underlying genetic component. There could be environmental exposures. And of course, there could be a whole range of other factors. We really don't know what could link childhood body size to future health outcomes. It's plausible something's going on, but if we step back, and from a public health perspective, it's important that we just even understand and explore these associations, even if we don't have the full mechanistic understanding we may wish to gain someday. So if you want to study the long-term consequences of childhood obesity, how do you do it? Well. To do it in the best possible way, you need prospective measurements of children. Many studies will actually use recalled weight. So they'll have somebody come in and they'll show them a series of uh, pictures and say, at age eight, which body size best represents you? At age 18, which body size best represents you? Are these pictures good enough? Very probably. Are they the ideal way of conducting this type of study? No, because of the risk of recall bias whereas people who are of a certain weight are more likely to remember themselves as another way, or they just don't remember themselves that way for many other reasons. Additionally, because fortunately these health outcomes are rare, you do need large numbers of children. And the most limiting factor in this type of work is actually you need a long period of follow-up for these hard endpoint diseases to occur. 
Many of these diseases we're talking about, cardiovascular disease, cancer, are diseases of middle age and beyond. So therefore, your cohort has to be of an age where you can actually expect these diseases to occur. And finally, you really need to be able to track these children into adulthood. Many studies will have multiple measurements of children when they're in school and accessible, but as the future goes on, these children get lost. So you don't have the opportunity to see what happens. And of those children who do get lost and those who don't, you never know what types of differences there may be between the two groups that could bias your findings. So really, worldwide, few cohorts can fulfill these criteria. Here's an overview of really, I think, the biggest cohorts that actually do fulfill these criteria. There's the Boyd Orr cohort, which is a pre-war study of uh, nutrition and disease. It's a slightly lower socioeconomic group, picked deliberately that way, but these children have been followed up. And this is, of course, in Britain. There's a British 1946 cohort study, which was a sample of all births in one week throughout, uh, I believe it was England, Wales, and Scotland. And this group has been extensively followed up. And something very special about this one is the children were measured repeatedly. So this, this particular cohort, although it's smaller than others, has a huge advantage in that you can actually see what childhood growth looks like. There's a very special cohort from Hagerstown, Maryland, the United States. It was a large cohort, and the children were measured with really detailed measurements because it was going to be used, their measurements were going to be used for part of a growth reference. This cohort, the members have been tracked, but unfortunately there's been a lot of loss over time, and the tracking possibilities don't particularly exist anymore for this one. A very notable group of cohorts is the Helsinki University and Maternity Cohorts. These ones are based, as the name implies, around Helsinki. These children were born in the 1920s to the 1940s, and they've been tracked up very efficiently through the register system in Scandinavia. So with these children, many, many long-term studies have been performed, and a lot of the really uh, seminal work in the early origins hypotheses of birth weight to later disease have come from this particular cohort. And the last but not least is the cohort that I work with. This is the Copenhagen School Health Records Register. These children were born from 1930 until 1989, and we have nearly complete follow-up potential for all of these children because of the Scandinavian registry system. So the personal identification number there, much like the NHS number here, tracks. So we can follow them through a hospital throughout the country, we can follow their vital statistics, we can follow them through cancer registries, we can follow them through social and other health registers, and additionally, we can link to multiple cohort studies throughout Denmark as well. So the potential for tracking with very little loss to follow-up is incredibly immense in this cohort. And additionally, we have over 372,000 children. So we have a big enough base of cohort members, who, especially these ones born in the early years, who are of an age where we can have these long-term consequences occur. This register was established because public health nurses and doctors just measured children in school annually. It was just part of the routine, it was part of the system. It was a way of monitoring the health and growth of the population within Copenhagen. And these records, they're beautiful, they're works of art. I mean, the detail, the beautiful script. Unfortunately, over the past 30 years, all of these records have been computerized. So now it sits in the database. It's been an immense undertaking. And in fact, the work is still ongoing. So as children hit a certain age, and we're just entering the birth year 1990 right now, so the cohort is still growing. 
The advantage of this particular cohort is we have children from the very early years, and if you compare what a gym class looked like to what a gym class looks now, and these are both Danish pictures, you can see how we are spanning time with immense social changes, healthcare advances, medication advances, and of course, the development of the overweight and obesity epidemic. No matter how you define it, I think we would say this girl is larger than the average child in the earlier time. So with this resource, we can really study outcomes such as mortality, disease, and social consequences. In the next 10 minutes or so, I'm going to take you through these consequences using primarily the Danish data, but filling in the blanks where I need to with data from other cohorts. So total mortality, ischemic heart disease, cerebrovascular disease, cancer, and spousal choice and education level will be the social consequences I'll end my talk today with. If we consider total mortality, like I said, we have a plethora of information on birth weight and a very large amount of information in adulthood. So when it comes to the outcome of total mortality, this is a study we did examining the association between birth weight and total mortality. We used the midpoint <coughs> as a reference, so we're not making comparisons to extreme children, we're making our comparisons to normal children. What we can see is those who are small at birth and those who are large at birth have an increased risk of mortality. So this means from age, I believe, approximately 18 to 25 onwards, each year they have just a higher risk of mortality compared to somebody who had a normal birth weight. The intriguing thing about this study was, up until this time, it had been fairly firmly discussed and believed that the bigger, the better. Of course, logically, we think there must be some sort of cut point or maybe that wouldn't be so ideal, but it was really because cardiovascular disease was driving so many of these analyses It was just thought that the bigger the better. And with our study, we could see it, especially when we consider all-cause mortality, and we had about 11,000 deaths. That no, in fact, the larger you are as well also carries a risk. So it changed our way of viewing things and a little bit of thinking elsewhere. If we skip to the other end of the life course, and we consider BMI in adulthood, this is what we see. This is a study of about a million Americans, and in this case, this is in women. The picture for men is incredibly similar. Uh, here we have body mass index, and there's a hazard ratio of mortality. What we can see is that actually being smaller and larger carries an increased risk. Now, people always think that the, uh, the effect we see up here by being smaller is due to reverse causality from smoking. So this is why the, the uh, analyses were divided into healthy subjects who never smoked and everybody. And we can see that, in fact, no, the associations persist. So we've got both ends of the life course. What about the middle part? In this really seminal study from Hagerstown, they looked at the relative weight quintile of all and versus all-cause mortality in adulthood. And this is in boys and girls together. And it's an older study, so maybe we don't have all the confidence intervals and things that we would like. In this study, there is about 220 deaths. And what we can see is that those who are the largest were at an increased risk compared to those who are the smallest of total mortality. And all the authors themselves interpret this study very cautiously. This study has been cited widely as saying, the bigger you are in childhood, childhood obesity equals an increased risk of all-cause mortality in adulthood. Although the overall trend is significant, the findings aren't the strongest. So more recently, using data from the 1946 birth cohort, the authors investigated mortality at seven years of age and the outcome of uh, uh, BMI as a predictor. So in females, what we see is 
If we look at the hazard rate of uh, all-cause mortality versus BMI, the easy way of looking at this graph is because we cannot see the null line, the zero line, these results are not significant. The gray wavy bars with this beautiful spline just show us this is the confidence interval we have around these predictions. In this case, it was a null finding. And similarly for the boys, it was a null finding. Now this is at the age of seven years. In this study, they had about 330 deaths. These values are very well measured, and this particular study had the advantage where they were able to look at it at different ages. So when they repeat these analyses in adolescence, then we start to see a more similar pattern to what we see in adulthood, where the higher BMI will increase the risk. But as of now, this is pretty much it. These are the studies based on cohorts with measured information on the outcome of mortality. So we really don't have a lot of information in this area. Next, if we take a look at ischemic heart disease and cerebrovascular disease, although these are very different diseases, for this purpose we actually have to combine them. Uh, these are a few of the abbreviations I'll be using. Now here we have weight change from childhood to adulthood and cardiovascular risk factors in men. Now this is a really seminal study using the Hagerstown data. In this, we're comparing, the, looking at here, childhood relative weight, on the risk of having CVD risk factors. Uh, these included uh, abnormal lipids, glucose, and blood pressure. What we can see is children who were underweight in childhood and became underweight adults. I'm sorry, who, who remained weight stable. So they were underweight as children and they were underweight as adults. And these here, the black bar, are children who were underweight as children and eventually became an overweight adult. These people had a higher risk of having multiple risk factors. Whereas those who were slightly overweight and remained slightly overweight were a little bit less, and those who were normal and stayed normal, who went from underweight to normal, pardon me, had a lower risk even further. And so what this is actually showing us is that the biggest risk of having CBD risk factors is amongst those who were underweight children and became overweight adults. So there's something, that, some sort of interplay here between body size and childhood and how that changes to adulthood. So a child who was normal weight and became overweight actually has a lower risk. There were no children who really were overweight and stayed overweight. So it's, it's an intriguing study and it's really led to further studies. This is the most recent one, looking at change between child and adult weight status and having greater than one CBD risk factor. This is based about on over 6,000 children, and it's a pooled study. So this one includes data from the Muscatine study, from the Bogalusa study, from Australia, and from the Young Finns. So here, as a line of reference, we have a non-overweight child who became a non-obese adult, overweight child, non-obese, overweight child, obese adult, and then a non-overweight child who became an obese adult. <laughs> what we see is that the child is overweight and somewhat normalized their weight by adulthood. They actually had no increased risk of having one or more CBD risk factors. Children who were overweight and became obese adults had about a 1.7 increased risk. And children who were not overweight but became overweight had a very similar risk. So what this is showing us is that children who can normalize, so to speak, their weight between these two time points actually have the same risk of having CBD as children who are normal at all time points. So the results from this study are very encouraging because it says 
and suggests that if we help children normalize their weight, they're actually not going to be at risk of future disease to the same extent as those who stay overweight at all time points. Now, this is on CBD risk factors and not hard endpoints. In this particular study, we looked at the association between childhood BMI and coronary heart disease in adulthood. Um, this is based on about 15,000 uh, coronary heart disease cases, and we had enough power to look at it separately for men and women. So what we see here is for BMI Z-score increase, and I should say these are internal Z-scores for a variety of reasons, amongst the boys, the higher the BMI, the higher the risk of having seed coronary heart disease in adulthood. And we found very similar results amongst the girls, and what we can see is the risks at 13 years of age were higher than those of seven. What makes the findings in this study interesting is these associations were linear. We did not find a cut point at which we would say your risk increases dramatically. It really is simply the bigger your BMI, the greater your risk. Now, if we move to the outcome of stroke, which has also great public health implications, and we look at this in the Helsinki cohorts, here we have age 7, and here we have the risk of having stroke. We actually see that having a lower BMI increases your risk at 7, and at age 11, there's really no associations. It was a smaller study, so we repeated it using our data, and here we have um, about 4,000 stroke cases. And in fact, we're seeing that U-shaped association again. And this is at the ages of 7, 10, and 13 years. So those who have a low BMI have an increased risk, and those who have a high BMI actually have an increased risk. So it's a very different pattern than what we observe for coronary heart disease. And amongst the women, we can say absolutely nothing. Other than at age 13 years, the higher the BMI up here, the higher the risk. But as you can see, the patterns are very, hmm, shall we say, not so clear. And we do have a fair amount of power here, so that's not what's holding the analyses back. I think perhaps stroke is just such a different disease, despite the same name, in men and women. And then finally, we come to cancer. Now, birth weight, as I said, has no associations with cancers. And for the majority of cancers, in general, outside from testicular cancer, the bigger the, be the bigger the birth weight, the bigger the risk. And as you can see, it goes for a whole panel of cancers. Similarly, in adults, the bigger the BMI, the bigger the risk for the majority of cancers. And this is the association between actual obesity, and this is fairly extreme obesity, and outcomes of cancer. And this is, again, using American data. But what about the middle? What do we know about there? If we look at the association between body mass index and breast cancer, we actually know quite a lot. Uh, breast, this is for many reasons. The most primary reason being that breast cancer is a cancer that occurs slightly earlier in life, so it requires a shorter period of follow-up to get to the analysis point. And in actuality, what we see here is, compared to those with the lowest quintile of BMI, those who have the highest actually have a protective, they're protected against breast cancer. It feels very unusual to think about BMI being protective, but this is actually a pattern that's been observed for premenopausal breast cancer as well. And then, one of the other studies out there, really one of the only studies to consider other forms of cancer, is the Boyd Orr cohort. And what we can see is they, as again, they have such detailed information on many variables we wish to look at, but can't always, when they do adjust, they were able to do adjusted and unadjusted analyses. So what we see is that compared to those in the lowest quartile of BMI, those in the highest 
have the highest risk of having any form of cancer, and there's over 300 cases in this analysis. So what they found is per standard deviation or z-score increase in BMI, there's approximately a 9% increase in the risk of having all forms of cancer. Now, if you notice the confidence interval does include one, it means it's not statistically significant when it's looked at this way. But this paper provides an intriguing hint that aside from breast cancer, something else may be going on between childhood body size. But there are no other studies. They are so few and far between, there's really not a body of literature to build up on. And this is why I embarked upon this project I've just undertaken recently called Child Growth to Cancer. In this, we're using the Copenhagen School Health Records, and we're linking this to the long-term outcomes of cancer. Because in my particular population, enough participants have reached the age where cancers do occur. There's more than 50,000 incident cancer cases, so we have enough power to do our analyses. Currently, I have many ongoing projects which are listed here, and I'm going to show you results from just about two of them to give you a taste of what's coming. In this analysis, which one of my PhD students is looking at, is the association between childhood BMI and the risk of endometrial cancer. And what we can see here is that at every age from 7 to 13, the higher the BMI, the higher the risk. I find it very interesting with this particular cancer is relatively stable, so it's not like coronary heart disease where we saw an increase across age. This was incredibly stable, so it really starts us thinking about other potential mechanisms underlying these associations. If it was just tracking, we would assume we'd see a much higher association at 13 because BMI at 13 is closer in time to the adult BMI than BMI at 7 would be. And additionally, we have a study looking at childhood BMI and the risk of hepatocellular carcinoma. In this case, it's men and women combined. There's about 230 cases of this particular cancer. These analyses are adjusted for a variety of variables, but what we can see is that generally, the higher the BMI, the higher the risk. This is consistent with what's observed in adulthood, but it's really one of the first studies to be able to look at this particular cancer in childhood. I mean, as I mentioned, we have an extremely large population, but we only have 230 cases of this. So it's incredibly rare, and we actually have the power to study this. The importance of the hepatocellular carcinoma to study, despite the low number, is it's highly fatal. The five-year survival rate is very abysmal. So any sort of information we can find out about factors that could potentially be modified earlier in life is very important in this area. If we consider a couple other outcomes, the last two outcomes of the day, there's spousal choice and educational level. In a study we did, we looked at a sort of mating in adulthood by people's BMI at 13 years of age. So what that means is, based on your body size, are you likely to marry a spouse of a similar body size? It's known in adulthood that spouses' body sizes tend to be very similar. But when these studies are done, the couples have typically been married, they've been living together for a couple years, so was it always that way or was it the exact sharing of that environment that led them there? So in this study, we went back in time, and we looked at their BMIs at 13 years of age. We divided marriage into two years, because around 1970 is when the prevalence of obesity really increased in our population. And what we see in the circles, we have where both spouses are over the 90th percentile of male BMI and female BMI at 13. And in the squares, we have greater than the 95th percentile, so even larger, if you will. So we can see that there's a higher odds of marrying a partner who's large, if you're large, 
and the bigger you are, the higher the odds. What we do see is that in even more recent years, when the obesity epidemic has become larger or more prevalent, these odds increased. So in the earlier time period, although it was likely you marry somebody who was heavy, in the more recent years, it's become even more likely. What this suggests is that we could be leading ourselves to an intergenerational effect of obesity, whereby heavy parents may tend to have heavier kids, and now we have an even more greater likelihood than in the past of heavy people marrying heavy people. So the implications for the future, we don't know what they are just yet, but it may not be very good. Additionally, it is known that obesity, the heavier a child is, the less likely they are to attain an education. The mechanisms behind this are a matter of debate. What we had the opportunity to do here was examine this by birth cohort. So as you recall, the obesity prevalence increased in Denmark in waves. So the question was, were heavy children, did their odds of attaining an education level, and this is really a basic education level, change over time? And the pattern that we see in no way reflects what we saw with the development of the obesity epidemic. And in fact, we think it may be greater, uh, more even strongly driven by the oil crisis in the 70s. So we're working with historians on this to really investigate why these different changes. These are very new results which we really haven't presented yet. So any ideas are very welcome here. And when we look at the pattern for the girls, again, at all points, heavy girls were less likely to achieve this basic education by adulthood. But it didn't vary as we were expecting with the waves of the obesity prevalence increases. So I mean, to summarize at this point, the future complications of childhood obesity, when it comes to total mortality, there is a positive association with childhood BMI, but the strength of the evidence is quite inconsistent. If we consider coronary heart disease, the association with childhood BMI has been shown across multiple studies, even more than what I presented here, and it is strong. Cardiovascular disease, some show a protective effect or nothing, others show an increased effect. So I say overall, the evidence is inconsistent. And if we consider cancer, aside from breast cancer, the evidence is inconsistent to lacking. For premenopausal, particularly breast cancer, the uh, higher the BMI, the lower the risk. So, <coughs> If we evaluate some limitations in the evidence, there is inconsistent terminology and definitions of childhood obesity. So it is very difficult to make exact comparisons. Even if you put everything in a chart and a graph, you're still a little bit comparing apples and oranges. The investigation of the mediating and potentially confounding factors is limited, and it does vary widely by study. Attrition rates or loss to follow-up rates are very high in many cohorts. You do have issues of selection bias. And of course, the cohorts we are studying now were born in a totally different era than exists today. Well, by virtue of long-term research, it will always be this way. If you are looking at a long-term outcome, this is a fundamental fact. So although it's a limitation, if you were to do this type of study, this is the only way to do it because it takes time for these outcomes to develop, this is always going to be the situation. What we do have going on right now in many of these cohorts is the members are reaching the ages at which these particular diseases emerge. So I think further studies will be coming out now. International consortiums are being established. I think this is going to go a long way by pooling data 
so we can really increase the power of these investigations. And more and more people are investigating these questions because it is becoming very clear from many perspectives we need to know what excess weight in childhood could lead to in the future. So with greater numbers of children becoming excessively overweight or obese at progressively younger ages, their future health is likely in jeopardy. Nonetheless, the risks have yet to be fully understood at both the population and the mechanistic level. And as modern cohorts age, so there's cohorts, birth cohorts established in the 1990s, where there's a lot of genetic information available, extremely detailed information about many aspects of the family life, I think we're going to have opportunities to investigate these questions further. And with that, I'd like to acknowledge my research group and the uh, people we collaborate with and the funding. Thank you.